Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry, only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands, all hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? My name is Andre, and this is the Tennis and Bagels podcast, a podcast about tennis hosted by me, Andre Rollenberg. I haven't yet come up with an introduction for this, but, you know, that's about it. And before we start, I just wanted to give a little bit of a, um, just expressing my thanks for finally reaching 100 plays on this podcast. It actually means a lot to me. Um, I probably, I'm probably going to make a small, short video to post to my social media Um expressing just that like just my gratitude towards the people that support me by listening to this and giving me your likes and follows on social media and speaking of social media um my next goal would be to finally reach 100 likes on facebook and 100 follows on instagram i'm really really close to the 100 likes on facebook i only need six more people to like my page on facebook and support me in that way That would be a huge milestone for me. And the Instagram one is a little bit farther away. It's um, I still need about 30 follows, but I'm pretty sure we can still do it maybe um, before, maybe by mid-July, maybe in in the next month. I'm pretty sure I can still, I can make that happen. Um, So yeah, if you're listening and you don't yet like and follow me, um, so just go ahead and do so. That would be uh, really awesome for 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 me, I'll be really grateful for for that little gesture that you can do. And uh, yeah, just keep listening and uh, just let me know whatever you think about this podcast. I, I, I really love to hear your opinions if you ever would like to um, express those with me. Um, so yeah, let's get this started. So last week, oh, actually not last week, but a couple in the last couple couple of weeks, um, another thing that has been happening. Pretty much all of it due to the coronavirus uh, crisis that broke out um, in January and in March. We just essentially had essentially everything um, close on us. So we don't have any tennis happening and we don't have essentially anything else other than essential services happening. And that's for the best. Stay home, stay safe and stay home, save lives. You all know your hashtag, so keep them active still. But um what ended up happening is also a lot of conversations that sprung out from the um, lack of, of tennis and no lack of business. Um, there's no viewership because there's no tennis. And um, believe it or not, not every tennis player around is a millionaire. Um, some of them actually really do struggle and they actually might have to opt out of tennis of their professional careers in favor of a day job like a, a regular job like essentially anybody most people in the world say um because tennis is not as um 
it doesn't pay as well as m many of us think. If you're in the top tier of a, if you're, if you're the elite tennis player, then yes, definitely you get millions of dollars. You get hundreds of thousands of dollars for every tournament that you play um, in uh, Fortnite. <laughs> and uh, to use the Grand Slam terms, uh, um, if you're the champion or the semifinalist or the finalist, you come out of there with a... Uh, probably a million dollars in your pocket and even if you reach for example the second or third round it's very likely that you still uh, leave the tournament with a solid 50,000 to um, a little bit more maybe um, on your bank account um, and that's really helpful but not every tennis player gets that um, that advantage and uh, because of that there were there was a little bit of a discussion between the top players to try to get a um, like a um, like a fund so that they would donate to this fund to help lower ranked players between the 250 to 700 um, ranked player in the world. And there are some criteria, and Djokovic proposed that, and some people were in favor, some were not. I don't think it actually passed, but it definitely raised a, a few discussions in terms of uh, how to actually support the players. And um, a very um, infamous comment made by Dominic Team. I think he's currently ranked at number three in the world. He was the finalist at the Australian Open this year, and he's been the finalist at Roland Garros, I think, twice. But if not twice, at least once he's been uh, the finalist there. Um, and he won, I think, one Masters 1000 tournament last year. I think was, I want to say Miami, but it could have been Indian Wells. It's either one of those. So he's been doing really well. That's the whole point. He's, he's number three in the world. He's um, very wealthy at this point. He has no financial needs whatsoever, or at least not that we can think about. Um, but he refused. He think that he actually, his comments were essentially, if I would resume them, uh, it would be around how he thought that those players who are lower ranked, he mentioned how he saw a lot of unprofessionalism and essentially kind of called them lazy in a way like that kind of like that's how he, he, he rang uh when he's when he spoke and that's how his words were essentially felt by a lot of people and there was a lot of controversy around this some people were saying oh that's not exactly how team uh wanted to phrase it he just kind of like phrased it badly he didn't really mean it that way he's would be really supportive of, about like helping people and whatever but Nonetheless, the PR um, problem was already there, and uh, he ended up um, having a few answers, and the most famous of all of them was from an Algerian female tennis player who made a video uh, talking about all of her sacrifices in her life that she, has, she had to make in order to become a professional tennis player, um, including how she was mentioning in the video um, how... She had to give up on um, a lot of social time with her friends and she didn't have courts in Algeria where she could play on. If it rained, there was no play. She had to play like indoors, try to figure out the best way to practice her, her shots. And um, there was essentially no um, federation support in Algeria to help her out in, um, in her career. And she was explaining of how if she was born in a country that has a lot more infrastructure for tennis, like Dominic Team, she's addressing the the the, the video to Dominic Team, by the way, um, 
she would have if she was born in one of those countries she would have had a lot more opportunities and she would have been potentially um helped a lot more and pushed a lot farther to reach uh, higher goals than what she has experienced in her life until now and by the way uh let me just read the name of the this video it's called open letter from a nigerian tennis player ines ibu to top player dominic team um When I watched this video, it had about 200 views. Now it's at 100,000 views and has has almost 2,000 likes and just only 85 dislikes. And to be perfectly honest, even though there is a discussion about how, oh yeah, it's Dominic's team team's money and uh, just because you choose a path, it doesn't mean that it's going to reward you. All of that is true. And uh, I'm actually going to... for the latter part of this podcast, I'm going to talk about a little bit of my life and how I actually wanted to become a professional athlete, but I couldn't. And financial reasons were actually one of the biggest part of of that happening. But nonetheless, uh, she's made all the sacrifices and she's not uh, lacking professionalism. And she mentions a lot of that in the video. You should probably go look it out. I'll leave it in the name of the video in the description and I'll try to put on the link. But I... And I'll put the link up in my um, in my Facebook page. Um, so, um, yeah, if you want to check it out, just go on my Facebook page and uh, click on the link in there. So, yeah, there, she has sacrifices in terms of, like, trying to pick and choose which tournament she's going to play at. Because not all tournaments actually um, are maybe worth playing. You kind of have to pick and choose your, your battles in terms of um, where do you have the most chance of making some money, of making to the next few rounds. Because... Um, tennis players are not paid all of their travel uh, expenses. They have to pay a lot of their expenses out of their own pockets because um, nothing is really given. They have to play to pay travel, to pay um, accommodations, to pay obviously for their food and, and stuff like that. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, they have to pay also for they also have to pay for um, their rackets to get strong. And she comments about how she doesn't have some of the basic apparel, like uh, tennis shoes and stuff like that. Uh, granted, m- the video is supposed to feel very dramatic and not necessarily just uh, like an informational piece of anything. But I feel like it's very real. And I, we can 100%, I can 100% see like how that is actually the truth. Like when she talks about like, we come in in a, t- in a tournament with a pair of shoes and you hope that they would last for the entire week. And... I've destroyed a couple shoes in my life, a couple tennis shoes, and just playing as an amateur, I cannot even um, fathom how it would be to play uh, professional tennis. You, you probably destroy your equipment really quickly, especially if it's shoes. So yeah, that's that's a lot of that. And um, yeah, to be perfectly honest in terms of like how I, how I feel about this whole situation about Dominic team is that number one, I don't think he meant it as a, as just like he doesn't care about those people and he doesn't, I don't think he believes in meritocracy in the sense that like, I don't think he's ignorant enough to believe that everybody comes out to play tennis at, with the same amount of opportunities as he had in life. And like there is no, it's no secret, for example, like when you look at the facts, most of the tennis players are from developed countries, are from European countries or the United States and Australia, it's it's rare that um, um, players will come up and become, like, there's tons of, like, South, South American players, actually, who are, who do really well, but that's kind of like a, it's not 
they don't come out like in in waves like uh like they come from out, outside of Europe and uh, the United States it's it's far more rare than that but yeah and just kind of like to segue into that I was saying like how my life had a little bit of those um some of the, these issues I kind of wanted to kind of like open up about about essentially my life and like my relationship with tennis it's uh um less uh dramatic in the sense like I never really got to become anywhere near a professional I didn't actually play um competitive tournaments uh, in the um in even in the provincial level um let alone the national level but I kind of had this dream and uh I feel like it's important an important part of me and important part of my my past so yeah just um to start off like how everything started for me is that I started off playing tennis uh at an at a later stage in my life. I was 12 years old when I first picked up like a racket to play tennis to actually learn how to play technique. It's not like I never touched the tennis racket before, but to actually kind of like give some time to actually learn um and devote myself to, you know, playing better and becoming better. It was just around uh, 12 years old and I started playing because I had a few friends who were playing in um in an academy near the near my school when when I was young and I wanted to just kind of like join them because it seemed a lot of fun but um what ended up happening actually is that I I ended up going to a different academy and uh anyways it was even even that wasn't wasn't a bad thing actually at all because I it may have been actually better because I could actually focus on actually playing tennis. And I figured out that I actually liked the sport instead. Maybe if I wasn't, if I were with my friends, maybe I would have just kind of like Ben Wagoon in and out in, into tennis and then out of tennis when they left. So I am really happy that I, um, with the academy that my parents uh, put me in and, um, it wasn't, I wasn't playing every day. I wasn't playing eight hours a day. I was, it was kind of like, an hour and a half classes twice twice a week so it just kind of goes to show that it was a very expensive expensive sport and by the way i didn't mention the very important fact is that i i mentioned that in, a, in another podcast but uh um i'm from brazil so i started playing on clay and uh i've i think i've experienced a lot of uh, inesis problems but maybe on a, a, a softer level i wasn't as it wasn't as terrible like, as not having any infrastructure at all but the infrastructure that we had was expensive and um, paying for the the classes was expensive and paying for the equipment was also expensive um and it probably still is today i mean, i didn't get a, my first pair of like actually actual tennis shoes until maybe a year since I started playing, maybe a little bit before that, but it wasn't right away. I didn't get everything right away. So yeah, I just, I didn't get everything right away. So I had to, so I had to wait for my things to come in and just kind of like, where I actually had to show the interest in the sport. And um, a lot of things happened along the way. I remember very clearly that I broke my arm when I was skateboarding with my friend uh, um after maybe Easter period, something like that. And um, I had to stay off course for six months because it was a pretty bad um, fracture. And, you know, but then I, I came back afterwards and 
I was even more excited to play, and uh, I actually really loved playing on um, on clay. And my, I think my best shot before uh, coming to Canada was my backhand. I really had a really solid backhand with had a lot of topspin, and I kind of liked my movement. And for a short person, I'm about like 177. I I think I like to think that I have a pretty good serve. But obviously, when you move out to like to people who are your level, definitely my service probably just kind of like average. But in, in any case, um, that broken arm, and then I had to move to another city. Actually, I didn't have to. I moved it to another city because of my choice. I wanted to finish. Um, that was the year before I came to Canada. I moved to another city in Brazil. It was just about three hours away from my um, my parents' house. Uh, so I moved uh, to my grandparents' house in this other city, and um, that I started playing a little bit more, um, a little bit more in in general, because I it was actually just kind of like a five ten minute walk to the academy from my grandparents' house. So uh, I played four times a week there, and I just absolutely loved it. And as soon as I entered the academy, like some of the professors, some of the coaches were kind of like. Um, Oh yeah, we're just gonna move you out up into the um, to the higher like higher level classes. And actually, I kind of really really struck with me once that I was playing with one of the coaches, and he completely destroyed me in a, in a match. It was like six one or six love, and he said to me afterwards because um, I was kind of like up, upset, right? I didn't I didn't actually think it was that fair that he would like not um hold back at all against me but it was like oh yeah I, I, I didn't i didn't want to hold back against you because it's only by playing against better people that you get better and he said like he believed in me that i can actually become much better and i was like wow that's actually pretty profound and i was i was very like actually happy about it because it kind of like motivated me a lot to actually play i don't think i ever played against him after that but um it was a really good um piece of uh wisdom for me so i was really 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 happy about that moment um and uh i was i was at school at the time back in in brazil um school not all schools are like that but like where i was studying it was from 7 a.m to 12 p.m or 1 p.m something like that and i came back home and i went immediately to the to the courts at like 2 p.m. So, and I stayed there until like maybe 8 p.m. and stuff. And uh, I would come back home and just kind of like sleep and go to school the next day. I remember it kind of took a little bit of a toll in my studies, like just, but that's not necessarily because I didn't have time. It's just kind of like I was being a little lazy. I just really wanted to focus just on playing tennis, um, which is not a very good thing. Like I feel like people should really focus on their studies as well. Um, that was a little bit of my mistake, especially because now I'm not even a, a professional. So, you cannot even say that it paid off that much, but I'm I'm happy that I played. So yeah, um, but and even uh, I had a lot of uh, even though I had like a lot of psychological problems in the sense like I couldn't actually play my best, and I I'm pretty sure that's probably the case to ninety percent of the the kids that play tennis is probably just overcoming the fear of doing terribly and kind of like beating yourself on court. Um, even though I had all that, like I'm all of the coaches like in the academy, they were just really encouraging to me and saying like, oh, yeah, maybe I could even like go um, um, end up 
like provincial level, like state level back in Brazil. It's states, not provinces. But yeah, and um, who knows, maybe if I stayed in Brazil, I could play national or maybe I could have just given up altogether because the sport never ceased to be expensive. It was always sacrificing that I could, um, by sacrificing that I could actually play. But yeah, and then the final hit came essentially um not there was the definitive hit but not the hit on my last hopes which to which i'm going to um arrive a little bit later uh, as i'm describing my and narrating my story um so when i came to canada um we obviously had much less money because things change a lot when you're an immigrant and we didn't come necessarily with uh with the job and um with the money in our pockets was essentially just kind of like to restart our life. So essentially restarting everything meant that you may you needed to make more sacrifices. So with that being said, um, Canada also is very unforgiving to uh, in terms of tennis. I guess probably because it's cold here and they kind of like need the infrastructure to be actually really efficient and pay off. So they probably are essentially just looking for the best of the best and people who are who actually have a chance to making on the pro tour. So yeah, winter sucks because the for like about six months you cannot even play. There's tons of snow outside. It's just way too cold. Um, the indoor courts are, are expensive. So I kept I kept trying my best, like uh, doing just kind of like the public uh, system tennis type of thing, which um, puts in together like 15 kids on four courts and just you have a couple of hours and there's a, a bunch of other different levels. So it meant that I got to I got to play against a ton of people who were not in the level that I would have liked them to be. It's kind of like contrasting in the sense that I was playing against my coach, and then I was playing against people who were kind of just kind of like recreational tennis. They just could hit the ball just for fun, not necessarily trying to like improve their technique to perfection. But yeah, so this is how things went. It's not to say that I never played in here against people who were of high caliber. I've always had a um, very good fortune in finding lots of people who are very interested in tennis and who are actually really good. And I'm glad to be in touch with with a bunch of them um, nowadays. But um, in terms of actually practicing and getting better, it, it at that point, it, it stopped. My backhand is now my trashiest shot. I was able to improve my forehand just, by, just because it's a, na- a more natural shot, if you will. So... Yeah, but everything else is just not good. It's just pretty garbage. And my physical conditions also like way lower than used to be. Um, so yeah, absolutely. The, and that's not just for today. I'm 27 now. It's been 10 years that I moved. 10? Actually, more like 11 years that I moved into in, Canada. And I've... Uh, yeah, so it hasn't been uh, the greatest of my... Of the physical... Um, tests ever since in the sense like I haven't I don't go to the gym very much because I don't necessarily like to train in that in that way I like to play tennis and I like to be active in in that way but just kind of like um just going to the gym and lifting weights and running on on treadmills is it's a little bit boring honestly I would have done it if I could still play tennis and improve my game by doing that but just doing that just by itself is it's a very little very it's a very boring thing for me so yeah um Getting back a little bit to what I said about Canada not really supporting tons of people is they actually, they are really supportive 
if you're a kid and um, if you're already demonstrating a lot of um, commitment and talent to the game. And it's still an elite sport in the sense that you still need some money to play. And I, I would guess, especially in Canada, because of winter and you have to find um, covered course to play in, indoor course to play in, and uh, it needs to be heated. Needs, and those cost a lot of money. It's it's easy to understand why it would be more expensive to maintain courts here in Canada than you would be in a warmer country like in Brazil. So yeah, if I came here, oh, well, this is about I was 16 when I arrived, and um, if I were already a very accomplished player, maybe I could have made it into um, their um, the rosters and becoming a little bit more of a like a having a little bit more of an opportunity to become to join the juniors and whatnot. But I wasn't. I was just kind of like I was giving my best to make up for the time lost for the fact that I started late. And when I got here, I wasn't I wasn't special. And uh, yeah, so that happened, and uh, that was the that was the actual definitive blow. But um, the actually the actual real blow to my uh, hopes of becoming professional came at the age of twenty one. And that's late. I was kind of like, it's just kind of like the little flame of hope that stays inside your heart. But it just kind of like, you don't, you know, it's not true. No, it's never going to happen. But you just kind of like keep it alive just because, you know, who knows, you know? Um, there was one time that I was playing on the courts outside of uh, like, clo- like near my house. And I was just kind of like hitting against the wall. And there was this one um, coach that was kind of like training. Um, I would often see him and uh, he would train a couple, a couple kids. And um, I was just like hitting against the wall. And my, if you know me, my physique is not exactly, um, I'm not a big guy. I'm, I kind of look really young. Like some people still come up to me and ask me if I'm 17, even though that's 10 years, in my, 10 years younger than my actual age, which I actually take as a compliment. I really like that. But um, by the age of 21, I probably looked like I was like 13 or 14. So the guy comes up to me and I, uh, he sees me hitting against the wall and he invites me in to, into the court to um, hit some shots against the, the kid that he was playing at that day. Uh, left-handed, probably like 13-year-old girl. And she was hitting really, really hard. She was hitting some really good serves. And the guy invited me in. He was like, oh, yeah, just practice with her. It's like, do whatever drills she's doing. And I was doing my serves as well. And I was really happy to be able to do that, like... I don't think I will ever turn down a chance of like playing tennis and uh, in a good level. So I was playing there and uh, eventually he put us both to play against each other. Um, I don't know if we played a tiebreaker or something like that, but we started playing against each other and I would just kind of like hit the girl. um, It's kind of like hit through her like very often. She was kind of like getting a little upset that I was so much not better than her, but just kind of like I had more like essentially tennis IQ in the sense I could hit some winners from like crazy places off the court and I would just kind of like dictate play. And at some point she would um, make some winners just because like she was getting angrier. Um, she definitely had way, way better physical condition than I have. She, she would run far more than I did, but I would make her run a lot too. So that, that makes me feel really, really good. But then at the end of that practice, what happens is that the guy, the coach was kind of like, come, she came up to me. Oh, he came up to me rather. And he asked me, um, oh, hey, you're, you're really good. Like, how, how old are you? And I was like, I still had kind of like the little, 
um kind of like this shining shining that shine in my eyes like my my eyes were kind of like shining bright it's like oh maybe this is like an opportunity uh like but little did i know i actually actually knew it very well that i was too old already and i just answered it's like yeah i'm 21 and he was like oh okay then and he just kind of like walked away and that was definitely the final blow that like totally put an end to any hope that i might have had to um become a professional athlete even though i wasn't already necessarily working towards that um but that's essentially the moment that you just kind of like you come you come to terms and you and i was like oh yeah i'm definitely too old now am i <laughs> so that's that's how the professional tennis career um ended the dream ended right there for me um but i still really do love the sport i still love tennis as you can see i've started a tennis podcast and i'm actually really excited about it um at the beginning i know that my uh my speaking skills weren't necessarily the greatest i felt like all of, a lot of my nervousness would come out and kind of hinder even my pronunciation i wouldn't necessarily speak english properly and probably i was speaking faster than i should have i wasn't necessarily taking any pauses or breaks and um i feel like um right now i'm in a much better place with that but um i digress a little bit uh, that's just to say that i really love doing this and i really enjoy doing this podcast and uh i really have hopes in the future to work for something bigger in terms of tennis to maybe work for a tennis federation or for a tournament um and yeah i i still love watching tennis i i watched a lot of um tennis on tv ever since i was growing up and uh, when I picked up the racket to play and uh, I don't even remember exactly uh, when I started watching but I remember clearly a match that Djokovic played against Radek Stepanek and he won in five and that's that was the moment when I actually started um, liking Djokovic and on a side note it, it makes me sad that he's doing like all the pseudoscience type of thing on his Instagram and giving space to other people that's definitely what he believes and that type of belief can kind of like um take a little bit of a toll on his uh on his image but i still really love him as a player and uh i really enjoyed uh watching like like following his career since like 2007 i believe and um um it was really cool uh i remember very clearly when in 2011 um, when he started winning everything, I was very ecstatic. I was really, really happy that Djokovic was winning um, things. And he won the Australian Open again after um, three years, I believe, 2008. That's when he won the first. And then he came to win another Grand Slam only in 2012. And then he went on to reach the semifinals in the French, losing to Federer. But then he won Wimbledon and then he won the US Open. That was so cool to see everything happening that way. And... Um, I also remember um, watching him against Vavrinka in 2015 in his Roland Garros final after beating Nadal, and I think it was in the quarterfinals or in the fourth round, something like that. Now, that wasn't his best of his years, but still beating Nadal on Roland Garros is a rare feat. Um, so I remember him losing to Vavrinka in that match, and I was really upset. It was it kind of like ruined my day. Um so I had stayed at home. My friends went out, and I I stayed home watching the match because I was I, I wanted to be there when Djokovic won for the first time. 
but he didn't, which was really sad. Um, so yeah, that, that happened. And, uh, um, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm now in Canada and I'm actually lucky enough that I live in Montreal and they have the Rogers cup here, which is a master's 1000 event and a premier mandatory event. So I got to see a lot of, um, elite players here. I watch Roger Federer. I don't think I actually watched him play, but I saw him uh, in one of those like golf carts that like just transport him around the uh, the site. And I just kind of like gave up on like even trying to get an autograph from him on that situation because there's like a crowd, a massive crowd of people just going um, after him. And the guy on the on the cart is like kind of like speeding his 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 cart because they're if they catch up with him, who knows how long it's going to take? And right, and it, it may even be a a public safety issue um, to transport Roger Federer from a court, from a practice court back to um, the safe house. <laughs> you know, if you know video games, you know what I'm talking about. So yeah, but I still remember also very clearly going to my dad, watching um, my first match in the Rogers Cup was a semifinal match from Andy Murray against um, Joe Wilfred Sanga. And he won that in straight size, I think it was 6-4, 7-6, something like that, or 7-6, 6-4. And it was, it, was, it was so cool to see that those like professional tennis players, like the highest caliber in the game, playing against each other. I remember they hitting the ball so hard. It's so much harder. Like when, uh, when you watch it on TV, you don't actually get the, the, the full picture of how hard they're hitting, how fast they're running, how physically demanding that game is so if you like tennis and you have never watched a professional match before i really highly recommend that you do so because you're gonna be amazed <laughs> it's gonna be an incredible experience and yeah i remember after that i've been going to the rogers cup almost ever since i think the last the past few the past two years is the only two years i haven't been but um i volunteer there even once and um it was during the, the WTA tournament. It was in 2013, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, no, actually, no, it was 2012. That's, I'm pretty sure that's, that's, when, that's when it was. And um, it, it was just really cool. I watched a, a great match between um, the, both Serena, Serena and, Vili- and Venus Williams. And it was crazy how hard they hit the, the ball, like how powerful their game is and if you ever believe that like on tv it may really seem like the guys are like so much faster and so much more powerful but in in reality um these these women are are so out of anyone's league it's it's just abnormal how hard they hit the ball it's just ridiculous so it was really awesome and i also got a chance to get autographs from a lot of people i got this one autograph from Rafa Nadal, which was amazing. I don't know if I mentioned here before, but it was it was super cool. Like the the um, the way that I got that autograph. Now that I think about it, I'm pretty sure I already said that in another episode, so I'm not going to repeat myself. But it was after this sick match that he played against Djokovic. Um, I don't remember exactly when. Uh, it might have been 2013. Um, so, but he lost in the Djokovic lost in the semifinals. It was. Uh, one of the best matches of the year, according to the ATP World Tour site. So 
I was really happy that I was there to experience that. And it was definitely one of the highest level and probably one of the highlights in my tennis um, life was to watch Nadal versus, versus Djokovic in here in one of the biggest stages of the world. Um, and my just kind of like bragging rights right here, it's just my autographs, as I showed in one of my videos, include, as I said, Nadal, uh, both Williams sisters, Azarenka, Ivanovic, and more. I think I also have um, Martina Hingis's autograph. I don't remember where, but I do have it. I'm pretty sure it might be in my uh, Wimbledon book as well. So, yeah. Um, I am excited to be doing this podcast, and I'm excited to like improve my connection with tennis and just kind of like maybe in the future, um, maybe if this podcast takes off or something like that, I would be super awesome, but I really will still be working all the time forever in my life. I think I'll be try to be as close as possible to this sport that I love so much. So yeah, and uh, yeah, I want to thank you all for, for listening to this, like my humble story with tennis. And uh, I'm pretty sure there's so many more people who are just like me. Um, but yeah, I'm just, I love this. And uh, I don't even actually care that much if the podcast doesn't reach um, the success uh, that some people have uh, if they has this doesn't have millions of plays and millions of uh followers i will i'm doing this because i love it and i'm um not to say that i'm not um that i don't care about the li the plays and, and the followers i i care about the people that are um enjoying this and i care that the people um that, are, that you are just listening to this and that you like my content i that really is inspiring to me as i said is it's really cool to have uh, reached the 100 uh, plays. It's really humbling. And it's, it will be really awesome to reach uh, 100 um, Facebook likes um, and 100 followers on Instagram. And I'll keep working and see like how where this goes. But yeah, uh, ultimately, I'm doing this for the love of the game. And uh, we'll keep doing this forever for the love of the game, for the love of tennis, and for the betterment and improvement of uh the the sport in in you know in the global stage it's already such a massively successful sport but i i want to do the tiniest bit bit of things that i can in to give to a sport that actually gives me so much joy in my life so yeah thanks for listening until now i really cherish your uh, attention and your time and don't forget to follow me on my face on my instagram account and like my facebook page so that I can reach those hundreds of uh, likes and followers. And uh, that would be really cool if I can. Uh, so yeah, thanks a lot. Have a great weekend and uh, I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>